Well, we come now to the preaching of God's word. And I should inform you that we're going to be out of the book of Romans for a little while. And one of the benefits of that is that when you have a break in the flow of expositing a particular book of the Bible, you have the opportunity to address issues that may not necessarily be as easily addressed in the flow of preaching that book. And so with that in view, today I want to address climate change. In fact, this sermon is subtitled Climate Change, Rainbows, and Covenants. And it's part nine in our series on the kingdom of God. And the issue of climate change is everywhere right now. This is no doubt the issue of the day. In fact, even as I was preparing this past week, I was struck by how relevant it is. I'm not sure there could be a better time to address this issue. And the reason it's such an issue is that it's being labeled an existential threat to mankind, which is to claim that climate change threatens man's very existence on earth, which is a complete lie and is utterly absurd. And this lie is being used to destroy economies, to rob citizens of their civil liberties, and to increase government tyranny. And in that sense, climate change is most definitely a threat, making this a matter that needs to be addressed. And we could address it on multiple levels. We could address it on the scientific level and could point out that the so-called science being employed isn't just purely theoretical, it's what's called consensus science, where the consensus of a group of unnamed and unidentified scientists and experts are claimed in support of something. It's when you hear scientists say, experts say, and why do they employ the science of consensus? Well, for one, because they don't have real science. If they did, they wouldn't need to appeal to consensus. And for two, because they want to shut down all debate and the furthering of real science, the practice of actual science, all the while exhorting you to trust their so-called science. Quoting one scientist at Caltech, he says, quote, consensus is only invoked in situations where there is a political, social, financial agenda, but no scientific support, unquote. And by the way, the pandemic was completely driven by the science of consensus. Consensus science is politicized pseudoscience. It is the very science that drives the climate change agenda. And so we could address it scientifically. But we could also address it ideologically and could point out that climate change is rooted in neo-Marxist and anti-humanistic ideologies. 
ideologies that are both anti-God and anti-Christ. And by the way, what do you get on the heels of humanism? Humanism is an an ideology that, that is purely naturalistic and removes God from the equation. And on the heels of humanism, when you've taken God out, you get anti-humanism, where mankind is viewed as a cancer that threatens the the earth's existence. Again, it's the consequence of rejecting God. Climate change is rooted in an anti-humanistic ideology, which is why it's also linked to population control the need to decrease the population of the earth so we could address climate change on an ideological level. But we could also address it on a religious level, that climate change is a religion, one that worships the earth, that the issue of climate change is connected to pagan idolatry called Gaianism which identifies itself as, quote, a religious philosophy that grants the living earth Gaia its rightful place at the center, unquote. In fact, listen to the opening excerpt from the Gaian Creed. This is on their website. Quote, we believe that the earth Gaia is a living being. That Gaia is at the same time both composed of the vast diversity of life and is alive in its own right. We understand that we depend completely and utterly on Gaia and are part of Gaia. We recognize that current human actions are fundamentally altering Gaia and that if pushed too far, Gaia will shift from its current state to one inhospitable to humans and millions of other species. Therefore, we commit to living radically sustainable lives, even to the extent that it may alienate us from our kin, our communities, and our cultures. We commit to sharing our philosophy and bringing others to understand and embrace their relationship with Gaia and help heal Gaia. And in the process, themselves, their families, and their communities, unquote. This is a religion. And adopts aspects of Christianity. I mean, Jesus said he would divide families, did he not? And so here you have the religion of Gaianism claiming the same thing, even claiming an evangelistic endeavor to spread the the good news of Gaia. So climate change is a religion and is rooted in pagan idolatry. And so we could address it on that level. Or we could address it on the governmental level. That climate change is rooted in globalism. And that the goal of climate change is to destroy our economy and make us like Cuba or worse. That climate change is just another attempt at increasing government control. 
that it's government tyranny through fear mongering in the name of saving the earth and the very existence of mankind. So we could address it on that level. Or we could address it on the spiritual level. That climate change is demonically driven and is a direct attack on the kingdom mandate of Genesis 1. That in the same way that Satan is attacking every other creational norm like marriage, the family, gender, and sexuality, he's now attacking man's God-given responsibility to rule and subdue the earth. And is doing so by means of the lie that climate change is an existential threat to mankind. So we could address it on the satanic level. But instead, we're going to address it on the theological level. Which is really to address it at the highest level. By employing the the weapons of warfare that are divinely powerful for the destruction of ideological fortresses and every lofty thing raised up against the true knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. And the ideological fortress of climate change is completely obliterated in the book of Genesis and specifically the Noahic Covenant. And so today, you're going to see the word of God disintegrate an ideological fortress to the glory and exaltation of God. And to set the table for this, we need to review some of the series on the kingdom of God. And in particular, the meta-narrative of scripture, the the overarching storyline of the Bible. You'll recall that there are two distinct expressions of the kingdom of God. His universal kingdom whereby he sovereignly rules and reigns over all things, and his mediatorial kingdom, whereby his rule and reign is mediated on earth through man. And prior to the fall, these two kingdoms were in total unity. And man was to exercise dominion over the earth by ruling and subduing it as God's representative, his vice-regent. But when man fell, these two kingdoms underwent a separation. And the overarching storyline of the Bible is God's redemptive plan to reconcile these two kingdoms by restoring what was lost in the fall through the second and better Adam, who will one day rule and reign from and over the earth. A restoration that will take place in connection with the restoration of elect Israel, And we'll bring about the restoration of the nations, the animal kingdom, and creation itself. And we'll ultimately climax in the establishment of the new heavens and new earth and the eternal kingdom. So this is God's redemptive plan. To bring about the conditions whereby man will fulfill the kingdom mandate through the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But by Genesis 6, the kingdom mandate is in severe jeopardy. And it's not the climate, nor the scheme of men, nor the scheme of Satan. It's threatened by God himself. Look at Genesis 6, verse 5 and following. Genesis 6 and verse 5. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. You want to talk about an existential threat to mankind? That is a real existential threat. God determines he's going to destroy the earth by flood. And this renders the kingdom mandate of Genesis 1 in severe jeopardy. But, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so though God was going to destroy the earth, he was going to preserve Noah and his family. And this is expressed in Genesis 6, 17 and following, where it says this, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Why is that important? Procreation. Verse 20. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And so though God was going to destroy the earth, the kingdom mandate would be preserved and God would start from scratch with Noah in some sense being a second Adam. In fact, following the flood, after the waters had receded, Noah receives a reiteration of the kingdom mandate of Genesis 1. Look at Genesis 9. Verse 1 and following. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you, by the way. There God sanctions the eating of meat. So if you want to know why you can eat meat, you can eat meat because of this verse right here in Genesis 9. We could also appeal to 1 Timothy 4, of course, and 
statements in the Gospels, but nevertheless, this is God's permission to eat meat. Meat is good. Amen? Verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require, I will require the life of man. By the way, as a side note, that is not ruling out the eating of your steak rare. It's ruling out eating the meat while it's still alive and requires the draining of the blood. That's all taking place by the time the meat gets to your plate. Verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. That's the kingdom mandate, and it's still on. And at that point in human history, there are only eight people in the whole earth. There's just one problem. The heart of man. The flood never changed the condition of the heart of man. And the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, Genesis 8.21. And so if God were going to continue to destroy the earth in response to the sinfulness of man, the kingdom mandate would never be realized. They only got to Genesis 6. And that's where the Noahic covenant comes in. Because in it, God promises to never again destroy the earth by flood again. Thus establishing the climate stability necessary for the kingdom mandate to advance and for his redemptive plan to unfold. And that means that the certainty of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants coming to their full fruition is actually anchored in the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant provides the necessary creational stability for the others to be realized. And it also means that regardless of whether or not the climate is changing, and it no doubt is, it poses no existential threat to mankind. Nor does exercising dominion over the earth and being fruitful and multiplying pose any threat to the earth. Now, the main text that outlines the stipulations of the Noahic covenant is Genesis 9, 8 through 17. And that's going to be our text for our study today. And so look with me at Genesis 9, verse 8. And we're going to read down to verse 17. God's word reads, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, 
I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall the Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The Noahic Covenant obliterates the whole ideology of climate change. I'm going to show you five features of this covenant. Five features of this covenant. And the first is this, the author of the covenant. The author of the covenant. Look at verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant. So God is the author of this covenant. Not only is he the one who brings it into effect saying, now behold, I myself do establish this covenant, but he also identifies the covenant as his covenant, calling it my covenant, rendering it unconditional, unilateral, and utterly certain. That it's conditional means that no obligations are placed on man. That it's unilateral means that man makes no contribution to its terms. And that it's utterly certain guarantees that it will certainly come to pass. In fact, not only is it as sure as any of the promises of God, but it is made doubly sure by virtue of God's covenant commitment. It is a binding oath. And it might be helpful to consider just who this author is. He is the creator of all things, the one through whom all things came into existence. He spoke all of creation into existence in six 24-hour days and then rested on the seventh. And he is all-powerful and absolutely sovereign over every aspect of the created order. And so not only is he able to destroy the earth by flood, but he is also able to never destroy it that way again. That's the author of the covenant. Now, second, the recipients of the covenant. The recipients of the covenant. Back to the start of verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you, that's us. You're aware of that, right? All of us have descended from Adam and through Noah. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, 
the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. So the recipients of this covenant are very broad. This is the broadest covenant in all of scripture. There are four categorical recipients of this covenant, three of which are listed in verse 9 and 10. There's Noah, Noah and his sons. There's also their descendants, so all of humanity that comes through them. And there's every living creature. So this is even a covenant that God makes with living creatures. You say, where's the fourth? Comes out in verse 13. Where God says, I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So this is a covenant between God and earth. Even the earth itself is a recipient of this covenant. And so in effect, this covenant is with all of creation. In fact, the only aspect of creation not mentioned in this covenant is the fish of the sea. Now, why would that be? Because they weren't destroyed in the flood. And that's why they weren't included in the pronouncement of divine judgment in connection with the flood. So the recipients of this covenant not only include Noah and his sons, but also include all of their descendants, every living creature, and the earth itself. And so even unbelievers are bound up in the recipients of this covenant. Common grace is tied to this covenant. And just to illustrate the practical significance of this, just consider Ireland for a moment. The Irish government is currently considering killing 200,000 cows to, quote, meet the European Union's climate targets. And the so-called science undergirding these measures is that, quote, cows, like all living mammals, produce greenhouse gases which could threaten their existence, unquote. And so because they could be threatening their own existence by virtue of the production of so-called greenhouse gases, The solution is to kill them. (laughs) Utter foolishness. The Irish government is either incredibly deceived or is being maliciously deceptive. Cows don't pose any threat to either their existence or ours, and that's because Aside from the inevitable threat of localized natural disasters, the climate poses no existential threat to mankind. The entire thing is hogwash. That's the recipients of the covenant. Now, third, the promise of the covenant. The promise of the covenant. Verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you. 
and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So there it is. God won't ever destroy the earth by flood again. Though there may be localized flooding, and though these floods may be incredibly destructive, think of tsunamis, for example, God will never again destroy the earth by the water of the flood. And even when natural disasters do take place, it isn't due to greenhouse emissions or emissions or man-induced climate change. It's simply the sovereignty of God. And yet if the world wanted to do anything to limit the number of natural disasters that do take place, what they could do is repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not the scriptures don't make a one-for-one correlation between man's sin and natural disasters, but they do depict that there could be a relationship between man's sin and those disasters. Now, though God has promised to never again destroy the earth by flood, what he hasn't promised is that he won't destroy the earth ever again. In fact, he has promised that he will, but it won't be by flood. It'll be by fire once his redemptive plan is complete. And to see this, turn to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. We go from the beginning of Scripture to near the end of Scripture. And this is revelation concerning the end. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and following, it says this. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying... Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Verse seven, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And this will take place in connection with the day of the Lord. In fact, in the flow of eschatology, it's the final event of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So the earth will be destroyed, but it'll be destroyed by fire. And it will be destroyed once all of God's redemptive plan has come to its full and final fruition. Until then, the Noahic covenant provides the kind of stability necessary to bring about all that God has planned. That's the promise of the covenant. Now, fourth, 
the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant. Look at verse 12 back in Genesis 9. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. What's interesting about this sign is that when you look at the Sabbath sign or the sign of circumcision, those were signs that were in place to remind man of God's covenant with God. In this case, the sign is actually in place to remind God of his covenant with creation. And so every time it rains and a rainbow appears, it's a sign of God's covenant to never again destroy the earth by flood. Children, when you see a rainbow after it's rained, that is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to never destroy the earth by flood ever again. And though it functions as a reminder for God, it not only reminds us of God's faithfulness, but it also reminds us of God's judgment. Since there was a time when the rain didn't stop. And since there's coming a time when the earth will be destroyed by fire. And in light of that, it's worth reflecting on the irony of our culture's preoccupation with the rainbow. Especially in light of God working all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. In the sovereign providence of God, the pride community, by the way, it's often said that pride is the root of all sin. The pride community has made the rainbow their emblem which means that they've adopted the very thing that is both emblematic of a phenomenal expression of the judgment of God and is also implicitly emblematic of the certainty of future judgment. Can you see the irony? We need to pull them aside and say to them, I don't think that means what you think it means. Though the rainbow is a sign of the faithfulness of God to never again destroy the earth by flood, it's also implicitly a promise that divine judgment is coming, eternal, unending judgment. And God has not minced words on this issue. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And so if they continue to reject Christ and they die in their sins, they will enter into everlasting judgment. And yet there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. 
Because the very next verse says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And so the next time you see a misappropriated rainbow, marvel at the irony It doesn't mean what they think it means. It means something altogether different. That's the sign of the covenant. Now fifth, the duration of the covenant. The duration of the covenant. Verse 16. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this is an everlasting covenant. And though the Hebrew word rendered everlasting can refer to time without end or eternity, it doesn't always have that sense. It can also depict a long, indefinite period of time where the exact length of time is determined by context. And we get a contextual clue with respect to its duration in Genesis 8.22. Genesis 8.22, and this comes on the heels of Noah building an altar and offering burnt offerings to God. And on the heels of God saying, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Then God says, verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And so this covenant will endure so long as the earth endures and the present heavens and earth will endure until it's destroyed by fire in connection with the day of the Lord. And I want you to see how God implicitly appeals to the certainty of the Noahic covenant as the foundation for the certainty of both God's covenant with David and the new covenant. And so turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following is the quintessential text on the new covenant. The only place in the Old Testament where the new covenant is named that way the new covenant. In verse 31, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And then God says this, verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me. So God stakes the certainty of his covenant promise to Israel in the new covenant on the fixed order of creation. And because of the Noahic covenant, the fixed order of creation is most definitely fixed. And God does the same thing with God's covenant with David in Jeremiah 33. So turn there. Jeremiah 33, verse 14 and following. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. This is that time when Christ will reign from and over all of the earth and righteousness will reign on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. It's justification. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. Verse 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, it's the way of covenant, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. God's covenant promise to David is also as certain as the fixed order of creation. And again, because of the Noahic covenant, the fixed order of creation is most definitely fixed. So all of this ties into the kingdom of God. All of it is related to God's kingdom and its arrival. The earth is guaranteed to remain until God's redemptive plan is complete. And that means that the claim that climate change is an existential threat to mankind is a complete and utter hoax. Ideological fortress destroyed. The earth does not need to be saved. And by the way, even if the earth did need to be saved, 
the government is the last one you would want trying to save it. And the reason that you can address this theologically without even getting into the science of it is that theology is the queen of the sciences. That was once believed and asserted. This is authoritative divine revelation. And so when the science is out of step with the word of God, you need to revisit what? Your science. God already knows how it all is. We're discovering what God already knows. God already knows how it all works. He put it together. And so when the science doesn't line up with his word, our science is wrong. Here's the truth. The earth is abundantly and bountifully supplied. And the Lord will return long before we've ever exhausted its riches. And so you can shoot deer, drill for oil, do whatever is necessary to foster prosperity on this green earth. It's there for that very purpose, to the honor and glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word, the revelation that you've given to us, what you've caused us to understand. And we know that we are not a a mighty people, a noble people. You have called us out of the world to shame the wise. We are the base things of the world, and yet you have given us so much and have made us so wise in your word. And so, Father, we give you praise, honor, and glory. We thank you for how practical theology is and how it speaks to this matter of climate change. And so, Father, make us strong and faithful. Ready us and prepare us to stand for truth and righteousness. Glorify yourself in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.